Okay, I'm recording. We'll see what happens. Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing all right. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Uh, we are going to be in, what is this going to be? This is going to be Second Samuel and part of Kings today. That's going to be our uh, Come Follow Me uh, lesson for today. But before we get into that, we do have an announcement that uh, we just want to put y'all onto about some changes we're going through on this mm -hmm. end. Um, so yeah, before we get into it, this is going to be our last Come Follow Me episode for a while. We'll still be sharing our insights from the Come Follow Me on social media every week, so you're not going to miss that. Uh, we might have more things to share via other mediums as well as part of, uh, you know, as part of our reason for slowing down on weekly Come Follow Me podcasts is that uh, is so we can dedicate more time to other initiatives and projects that the podcast has enabled us to do. Um, you know, you've probably, you've seen us do a lot of things outside of this podcast, um, even though our names have still been attached to it. It's enabled me to be able to go to school to create my course and now potentially do more work with the church in the future. Uh, Derek has also had his projects and he's going to be working on more stuff in the future, but at least for the uh, time being, um, and, you know, we're still going to be doing bonus episodes like we're still going to be uh, hopefully doing some more uh, interviews this summer special topics will more than likely be back for a uh, for a general conference episodes and you know in case there's some especially uh, meaningful uh, come follow me episode that we're going to have a lot that we want to say about we'll probably come back for that or in case anything in uh, you know there's anything newsworthy in current events that we may want to talk about we'll more than likely be back for that as well. But just wanted to give you guys a heads up that we are, that, you know, expect less in terms of weekly Come Follow Me episodes. Like we're not going to be doing that for the uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, just as a way of trying to lean into, I don't know, just, uh, just a better way of sharing our content in a way that is enriching and uplifting for us in a way that, uh, you know, gives more than it takes, I suppose. I don't know if you want to say anything or add anything. Yeah, Derek, I have a couple of things think... to say. Another thing to factor in or that we factored in is that the amount of reading that we cover each week, because we want to, ideally, we would be covering every chapter of the Hebrew Bible and the Come Follow Me narrows it and they, they leave out stuff. But covering whole books in one week is really tough to do in an audio format. So... Hopefully, some of what we'll be do well, what we will be doing is organizing some of our thoughts in a written form so that people can access them that way and figure out what they need to get. And um, another thing, really, about this is we want to empower people to do this. Some of this on their own, like we've been doing this now three years every week, and our methods are out there now. Our approach is out there. I think a lot of pe and people have people have started doing some of what we're doing based on their own gifts and their own experiences and then doing what we couldn't do because the of the identities that they bring to the discussion. So I'm so glad for that and I'd love to, to see more of that and encourage more of that. One thing I want to do is collect some type of resource list of like where do you go 
each week. We can put together a, a list of resources of what to look at, what commentaries to look at, what other Come Follow Me resources to look at, because I know some people use this to prepare their lessons or to teach their families or friends. So we want to take care of you that way and help you learn to do some of this on your own. And the other factor is, the real reason behind this is James is tired of hearing my jokes every week, right? (laughs) He's tired of getting ambushed on the air with these awful jokes, and it's too much. So (laughs) I'm sick of it. I'm just tired. I I can't do no more. I just Um, can't do no more. Yeah, so hopefully this will uh, this will be better for everyone involved. You'll get um, you'll get empowered. We'll be able to to turn some of our time to other projects, and it'll be a uh, we'll yeah. So it'll it'll be what it is. And there's a lot of support now for everyone. Um, other good come follow me podcasts have arisen in the past three years. So we will uh, we will look forward to cheering everyone on. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll still be here. We'll still have content. We'll still have bonus episodes. Um, Hopefully we'll have, instead of doing Come Follow Me episodes each week, we we will have some time to have more guest episodes, more um, Mm -hmm. reactions to uh, current events, general conference, um, a few Come Follow Me episodes. Like, I'd like to do one on Esther. Um, Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens and this will be great and so thank you so much for your patience all of you who have been loyal fans we we see you and we uh, uh, wish you the best and we we feel your love and uh, and you feel James's pain every time I tell a joke (laughs) so hopefully we'll find a way of continuing that yeah but except that last part, not, yeah, not, the, not jokes, the jokes, not my pain. Like don't want to, don't want to increase that. <laughs> but uh, but that's the best part. A lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of our fans love. Um, Some of y'all straight up had the audacity to be like, if y'all gonna be gone for a little bit, at least have a two minute episode where we just watch <laughs> James react to Derek's jokes. And I'm just like, y'all just are really having all this joy at my expense. <laughs> And I do not appreciate it, but you know. Well, I mean, we we both play our characters. We got our role. We got our role. <laughs> why, why why I got to be the foil though? Or why I got to be the straight mm-hmm. man? You are oh the straight gosh. man. Huh? I, walked right that, I walked right into that one. I walked right into that one. <laughs> yeah. and I hate myself for it. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, okay, let's uh, <laughs> let's get into some more of this stuff. On that note, <laughs> oh, I wanted to wish you a happy Juneteenth. So tomorrow, meaning Sunday, is the actual Juneteenth. And if this episode comes out on Monday, that is the federal holiday, which we've now had for the second year in a row. New federal holiday. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Celebrating yeah, the implementation of the end of slavery in this country. I don't have any historical introduction to this. We're just continuing Second Samuel. Well, um, do yeah, you have I about to something? say, there, I don't think there's a, no, I, I really don't. Like, uh, when I was looking into what the historical introduction would be, I was like, oh, this literally picks up where First Samuel leaves mm-hmm. off. So that means whatever we said last week for the historical introduction is going to stand for this one. Um, we're just at a different point. Right. We're, we're literally just at the end of First Samuel. So there's nothing new to report with regard to a historical introduction. So we can dive we can dive straight into the content from there. 
I guess the only thing to say would be this is the start of David's 40-year reign as king. Um, Yeah. So let's see what we got here. Pull up this little outline. I'm probably not going to have anything to say until we get to uh, uh, chapter 11 of Samuel. Uh, Is there anything you would like to... Is there anything you would like yeah, to cover before we get let's, there? Uh, I'm going to start with the account of Mephibosheth, which is uh, theoretically the crown prince of Israel. This is Jonathan, uh, Jonathan's son, and uh, Jonathan was the crown prince who would have inherited the throne of his father Saul. And David made a lasting covenant, um, but not just between the two of them, but between their seed as well, right? David's descendants and Jonathan's descendants. This is um, an eternal covenant between the two. And so even after Jonathan died and Saul died and David is now king, David took care of Jonathan's surviving son, Mephibosheth, who uh, sustained an, energy, uh, an injury in 2 Samuel 4, uh, leaving him with a physical disability, making... Um, making it unable for him to walk. And you would think a pattern in the ancient world would be to kill your um, the, the competitor's heirs so that there's no way that their line could be resurrected. I mean, this is very common in the ancient world. Look at what happened to the Caesars. Look what happened to Alexander the Great's uh, son. Like, There's just a whole bunch of stuff where someone comes in and they, they kill off all the people who could inherit the throne. But that's not what David does. David takes care of Mephibosheth. And let's look at um, chapter 9, verse 7 of 2 Samuel. And here's what David said. Um, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, your servant here. And David said to him, fear not, for I will surely keep faith with you for the sake of Jonathan, your father, and I will give back to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And as for you, you shall eat bread at my table always. And I just thought, find that that is an amazing way of caring for someone as part of a covenant part of um, making sure we take care of folks with disabilities, giving them access and dignity and accommodation, everything they need um, as best as we can, and using our power and privilege to take care of those who otherwise, theoretically, um, the social convention would have been to ignore or even eliminate. That's all I wanted to say about that. You could make that a bigger story. I guess go and read it is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Then I want to... Go back to Second Samuel chapter six, and this is the famous ark steadying narrative, which apparently ah, yes. people know of this story better than they actually know it directly. Because if you act, read this story <laughs> in context, you see that David is actually um, at fault. You see that. Um, and I'm not going to go over all these details because we went through it pretty thoroughly last year. So if you go back to the Ark Steady episode that covers Doctrine and Covenants 85 through 87, August 2nd, 2021, you will go and see how um, in the end, it's not so much that criticizing the leaders is what gets you killed. It's not criticizing them and not holding them accountable and not saying, hey, David, that's not the way we're supposed to carry the ark that gets you killed. Mm-hmm. So it is not 
holding leaders accountable to the written word, um, even if they're an anointed servant of God like David was, that is what gets God mad at you. So go listen to that episode. Think about it carefully. Look at the parallel in Chronicles. If you piece it all together, it's very clear that sometimes people uh, die uh, because God's anointed leaders make mistakes. We'll see this with Uriah and um, David and Bathsheba's first son and um, with people in the census and here with the ark steadier, mm-hmm. right? This is uh, sometimes people's leaders make mistakes and it's the people that suffer. So I just want to name that there. Mm-hmm. Go and check out that episode. Speaking of mistakes that anointed leaders can make, we've got David and the uh, incident with Uriah and Bathsheba. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm presupposing that people know the outline of the story, so I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go into the into all the details. Um, it's it can be an uncomfortable story, so content warning. Um, but David sees Bathsheba bathing. Bathsheba's husband is Uriah. Uh, first of all, he's a foreigner, or at least of foreign origin. Um, mm-hmm. and, and although his his name is Hebrew, so it, he may it seems like he believes in the in the God of the Israelites at least. And he's a loyal military servant to David, and he's off fighting battles for David. And while he's off fighting battles for David, David sees Bathsheba and feels entitled to her and feels um, lust for her. And a lot of people want to turn this into a lesson about pornography, and that's not what this is about. This is about um, the entitlement of men in a patriarchal climate who um, own, uh, who appear to uh, feel that they own the rights to women and that's that's a problem and this problem was called out in deuteronomy 17 that says do not let your kings multiply wives to themselves but anyway uh, people want to frame this as like consensual adultery between the two like like this is an affair when we look at the text in its narrative and historical context bathsheba is is not free to consent right um She's not blamed for this. She's not um, at at fault for this. Uh, Nathan, later on, the prophet, does not say, you and Bathsheba sinned. It's David, you sinned. Um, And so we've got to name this as something other than adultery or pornography or something like that. It is the entitlement of a person with power to get what they want and um, then try to cover it up, which that leads to multiple um, additional problems. And so let's mm-hmm. let's go to what happens. So what happens is um, Bathsheba gets pregnant while her husband is off at war, and then David realizes, oh, we've got a problem. And he first tries to cover it up by having Uriah come home and have sex with Bathsheba. So then everyone thinks it would be his kid, but he's, as a loyal soldier, is like, nope, I'm not going to do that while men are fighting. I'm not going not gonna to do that. And then um, David's solution is to kill Uriah. And what's interesting is how this happens. 
David does not kill him directly, and he doesn't even kill him through the intermediary nature of one person by hiring someone to kill uh, him. What he does is gives Uriah a letter, which was sealed with the king's seal, and Uriah didn't read it, to Joab, the commander, that says, what I want you to do is, in your battle with this third party, put Uriah in a dangerous spot and then withdraw your support from him so that he will be killed. So this is like a third order, like a, 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 a secondary tertiary uh, killing, right? David didn't kill him directly. David didn't pay someone to kill him. David gave a letter to give to a, th- a third person to let a fourth person kill them in battle in a way that's very indirect. Yet, David is held accountable for killing Uriah, right? So indirect sins are real sins. I want to to name this. Um, yeah, I want to I want to name this. It's uh, people say, "Oh, I don't have to wear a mask," or if I say something homophobic, I'm not responsible for the effects of that and the climate it creates where people um, die as a result of suicide or as a result of hate crimes or as a result of whatever. And people say, like, I'm not responsible for that. I'm just indirectly causing this death. No, this is one of the gravest sins. And David is held personally accountable by Nathan for it as if he killed. Uh, In fact, that's what Nathan says. You killed Uriah. You killed him, right? Even though there was a, a bunch of causal factors in between. I also want to name that um, uh, the a later son, um, the first son dies in infancy between David and Bathsheba, but uh, the next son, Solomon, becomes king eventually and becomes an ancestor of Jesus, and thus Bathsheba is named as one of the five women ancestors of Jesus, although her name isn't uh, directly mentioned, um, but the wife of Uriah is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, along with five other women. So that needs to be named. There's there's amazing stories there. And here's what David's problem, he had multiple problems. One of his problems was compounding his error. He could have repented, he could have just went to Uriah and said, whoops, you know, here's what happened. Um, Bathsheba's pregnant with my son. We're going to have to repair this some way, right? But he killed Uriah. And he did that to preserve his image. He did it to, to cover it up. And we see this. Whenever leaders get into a public position, one of their first instincts is to preserve their image. And when leaders preserve their image, then people die. Let me look at um, anything I wanted to say about this. Uh, yeah, let's go to Nathan. So after all this uh, stuff, the narrator in verse 27 of chapter 11 says, And she, Bathsheba, bore him, David, a son, and the thing that David had done was evil in the, size of, in the, evil in the eyes of the Lord. So this is the narrative, narrator's intrusive comment into, into this. And chapter 12, And then the Lord sent Nathan to David, Nathan the prophet, and Nathan involves uh, David in a parable, sort of a gotcha parable, hypothetically about some other situation. 
and um, and then and then David is mad at this. Like someone rich would take would just take take from a poor person, and which is a problem. We do not want to characterize women as property to be owned and taken. Right, so that needs to be named. Mm-hmm. But. Um, the poor man had one little you, and this rich man had everything, and then the, the rich man took the poor man's you and, and, and killed it. And David was so angry and said, As uh, the Lord lives, doomed is the man who has done this, and the poor man's you he shall pay back fourfold. Right? And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. So David had some sense of a conscience, right? At least was able to partially listen to the voice of a prophet of of the Lord here. And David Mm -hmm. appears to have humility. Um, I would love to spend time on Psalm 32 where uh, and Psalm 51, I'm not going to, but Psalm 32 and 51 are both ascribed to David. Psalm 32 is the one that says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. And Psalm 51 is explicitly named in the superscription as David's reaction to the sin uh, with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And it's a penitential psalm, and those are good. Go read them. I really think that there's the possibility that the atonement um, and God's grace and mercy and forgiveness can cover even this. I think a lot of people, based on what uh, DNC section 132, seem to think that, well, David lost all his hope. But if you look at David's own words, look at Nathan's words, look at Psalm 32 and 51 and elsewhere, we see more expansive possibilities than a wooden, um, narrow, out of context reading of Psalm uh, of DNC 132 would indicate. Anyway, so David's uh, sin with um, Bathsheba and then with Uriah leads to a bunch of problems, uh, and that's one of Nathan's uh, pushbacks. He says, "You know what? A bunch of stuff, a bunch of mess is going to come to your house and your descendants and your children because of this." And we'll see some of that in the. Um, in the in the future uh, chapters, um, in fact, some of David's children sexually assault others. Um, some of David's children rise up in rebellion against him and almost take the throne of of Israel away. So yeah, that's kind of what did you did you have anything to say? I feel like I didn't cover it well enough, but I don't know what else to say about about all this mess right now. Do you have any thoughts? Nah, man. Well, you were very succinct, first of all, like when it comes to covering this much material in as much time as you did. I'm very proud of you. Uh, wow. So, you know. That's because I didn't, I mean, I didn't waste any time with jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose not. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really mm-hmm. know where else to go that, you know, you didn't already go well, to except to say that. Th- well, I do want to name something else now. And it's, well, all what right. was Bathsheba's? feelings and all this because we don't do not have any of her words except one time in second samuel 11 verse 5 he sent to david and said i am pregnant right um and we don't know 
we don't have her voice recorded. We do have her voice recorded later. I can't remember exactly where it is, where she is advocating for her son Solomon to be king, and she she um, shows some initiative there. But in this narrative, we don't know um, what her desires were. And in fact, that's part of the um, David's, the way David acted is like it doesn't matter to him what her actions were. He he does after the death of Uriah, which David of course contrived. Um, she was now free to remarry, and at the end of chapter eleven, David takes her as a wife into his house. Um, we don't know her feelings on that. She may not have had a choice. She may have felt pressured into that. She may, as a as an unmarried pregnant woman, right? So her husband's dead, and it's mm-hmm. pretty known that he was away at war, and he, here she would be, a single woman who's pregnant, and that does not that's not going to be good for her. So she has an in, she needs to, in this um, situation, marry again as fast as, can, as she can, even if that's not what she really wants. Um, as soon as her mourning period was over for Uriah. She was taken by David as wife and she apparently had to do that because she was pregnant and she may not have had a choice. Um, And that's, I think the point of Midrash is that is being able to read into, well, what would she, what would her feelings have been? Like, is there any way we can reconstruct these things? And I think that is a place for, um, likening the scriptures unto yourselves and imagining and just dreaming and researching and thinking and investigating and interviewing women about well, what would her words have been? What would her feelings have been? And just um, memorializing her is important as, um, as Matthew does, uh, honoring her in the genealogy of Christ. I want to pause in terms of reclaiming women's voices. I just want to put a plug for the Mother in Heaven Gospel Topics essay. I don't know that we've talked about it recently. I think we've mentioned it before. But um, everyone should know about this. This is one of the most important documents that the church has uh, released on Heavenly Mother. And it dispels a lot of rumors. It's not perfect. It's not very extensive. It's not very comprehensive. But it does bring people a lot farther than they would be without this document. It does. It clearly says that there's stuff we know about her and that we can reclaim about her and that uh, it's not wrong to talk about her. It's not wrong to... Um, talk about her role in the plan of salvation i just want to name i would just want to read the first paragraph of this um this mother in heaven essay the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints teaches that all human beings male and female are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents a heavenly father and a heavenly mother this understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of God, our relationship to deity, and the godly potential of men and women. The doctrine of a heavenly mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints. What's interesting in here is there's a wide opening because it says this understanding, that is, um, heavenly mother, heavenly mother's existence and her role in our plan 
of salvation. It says it's rooted in scriptural teachings about the nature of God, which means, um, what are those scriptural teachings? It leaves it wide open for you to find Heavenly Mother in the Bible, especially. Um, also, if possible, in the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. So we have the ability, based on this essay, to find and seek Heavenly Mother in the scriptures and to, uh, to cherish that, that belief. Uh, and there's, there's more. I'm not going to go through this whole, um, whole essay. But I want to give a challenge to people to consider memorizing this whole document. It's um, tragically not that long, but fortunately it is short enough that it could be memorized. And I guarantee you that if you, mem especially men of the church, if you memorize this document, you will find places to quote it in your talks, in conversations with people, in, uh, in a comment in class. Like if people try to shut down a conversation on Heavenly Mother, you can quote the paragraph that directly relates to this thing. Um, like I said, this, this statement isn't perfect, um, but it is uh, important to, to own. And most people don't know about, I, I don't know if most people don't know about it, but most people don't talk about this statement. Most people don't uh, reflect knowledge of this statement in, when, when I hear them at church. Uh, we, we really don't talk about Heavenly very Mother very much at church, but if you can get up there and actually quote portions of this statement, and this is in a church official statement right here, um, it will be it will be great. Uh, I know I've also heard of people taking the statement and printing it out like the family proclamation and posting it on the wall of their house. I think that is a power move as well, right? I think um, little girls, little non-binary children, um, all people other than than men need to know that they are fully in the image of God. We only talk really about the male parts of God, but we need to, to, to know that everyone of all genders are equally created in the image of God, and it's important to reclaim these voices in Scripture. Uh, so that's um, where I wanted to, to leave that. All right. Thank you for sharing that. What did you say the name of the document was again? It is called Mother in Heaven, and it is in the Gospel Topics Essays on the churchofjesuschrist.org website. There's also a tab uh, for Gospel Topics in, um, in the uh, LDS Tools. Uh, oh, yes. It should yes. have everything in there mm -hmm. from uh, the translation of the Book of Mormon, race in the scriptures, and that Heavenly Mother essay is in there as well. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to talk about something similar regarding uh, the women in the text, specifically more, you know, texts of terror in these stories. Bathsheba, as you already said, was in a not ideal situation. The, the power dynamic was clearly in David's favor, which is likely why some folks will call her initial encounter with David uh, a rape. Then we get to Tamar, uh, David's daughter, a victim of incestuous rape. Then we get to David's secondary wives, who are claimed as property by his son Absalom, and they're likely raped as well. Too, too many of the women in these stories are treated as objects to be acted upon, 
And uh, even when men are the ones breaking both social norms and laws regarding these women, Amnon isn't held accountable by King David for his sin against Tamar. Not until we get to Absalom anyway. And even then, we, we don't see if Tamar really gets justice or Bathsheba or David's secondary wives. Like, like we saw back with Dinah, it's, a, it's another instance of a narrative of an entire people suffering because of their disrespect of women. And we, and we don't really see any resolutions for any of them in the text. And we, we got to sit with that. Um, and I have to name, like, we can't take Nathan's words completely uncritically either, because those were recorded and preserved and edited by an individual or community that had a particular agenda. And I just want to name that what Absalom did to David's wives and concubines, apparently David did to his predecessor, Saul's wives and concubines. Here's what it says um, in 2 Samuel 12, verses uh, 7 and 8. Um, And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, So this is put in the Lord's mouth here. It is I, the Lord, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who saved you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your lap. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. So the the narrator frames Nathan as saying that not only did um, David have on the Lord's authority uh, his predecessor Saul's kingdom, but also Saul's wives. And I'm like, that is um, needs to be named as something to wrestle with and say, is this what we think of God? Is, um, is this what's going on here? Is this one of the human fingerprints all over the scriptures? And how do we take this responsibly? And what do we do with this? And I'm, I'm not an expert on this. Um, and I don't have the same skin in the game as uh, women who are married to men in this church or women who are potentially subjected to uh, celestial polygamy uh, without their consent, right? We don't know, um, or I don't know, uh, what to tell people as to how to take these texts. But I just want to name that as uh, something that we can't just brush over and pretend is not there. Okay. Uh, is there anything else in uh, Samuel that we want to go over before we move uh, into Kings? Uh, let me look at these notes. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to name Etai. So in 2 Samuel 15, David is on the run from his own son, Absalom, and he ends up uh, a really interesting dramatic irony because his own son, Absalom, is now trying to... to uh, claim the throne and kill David. Yet it's an outsider, someone who's not even an Israelite, that is valuable to King David. Let me go to. Let me figure out what verse I want to start in. Okay, so here we have some. So we've got Etai from from Gath. So he's a Gittite. 
which is one of the Philistine cities. So he's not even part of, or at least ethnically part of God's covenant people, but yet he pledges his allegiance to King David. And here's what it says, starting in verse 19. And the king, that's this, this David. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, emphasizing his foreign status, Why should you too go with us? Go back, stay with the king, for you are a foreigner, and you are also in exile from your own place. Just yesterday you came, and today should I make you wander with us when I myself am going to wherever I may go? Turn back and bring back your brothers. Steadfast kindness to you. So um, then Etai, it says, answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, that first lord is the covenant name of, of um, the God of Israel. As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, whatever place that my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there your servant will be. And David said, Go and cross over. And Etai crossed over and all his men and all the children who were with him. So Etai pledges his loyalty, he wasn't even an Israelite, um, to King David. And I find this such irony that chosen family, that non-biological covenants are what the author of First and Second Samuel puts priority on over biological family, right? If people want to say, oh, biblical families, no one should want a biblical family like King David's family, right? Yeah, that was a mess. <laughs> right? Um, just because you're biologically related, that doesn't make you family. What makes you family is chosen family, adoption, covenant, um, transgressive, cross-cultural, cross-boundary covenants, right? Um, yeah, I think family is one of the most uh, abused and manipulative words in our church. Like, I just, I don't want to get into it deeply, but I, I just heard about this new Pixar Disney movie, Lightyear, and apparently there is a same-gender kiss between two uh, women in the movie, which I have not seen, and I don't know the details of it. And, um, on, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mess that people are now pushing back on it and um, using the concept of family. And there was a comment on the Deseret article, on the Deseret News article that said, hey, I thought Disney was supposed to be family-friendly. There's no room for... Uh, for LGBTs, right? I'm like, you're contrasting family with LGBTs, and I think LGBT folks are the best teachers of what family is. We've been rejected by biological sharers of DNA and created true families that are based on love and commitment and loyalty and all the stuff that family really is. I mean, just sharing DNA didn't help David and Absalom or uh, Tamar or Amnon or any of the right sharing DNA isn't what family is about. Um, it's about chosen family for me, right? So I just wanted to name name that as we see that here Etai is choosing to uh, be loyal to King David at a time where he was vulnerable and needed support. And that's all I wanted to say about Second Samuel. Okay. 
I would like to uh, switch gears a bit, talk about uh, Solomon, and in doing so, talk talk about David too. They have quite a bit in common as uh, individuals with incredible faith-promoting stories and wisdom. We spoke last week about David's patience and his ability to follow God with unwavering confidence and how that led to him slaying Goliath and how we need to emulate that kind of faith. We also talked about his leadership. And uh, now this week, we're talking about the severity of his sins, uh, like the Ark of the Covenant and, uh, you know, Bathsheba and killing Uriah and how the severity of these sins and mistakes and how they've led to deaths and calamities in his own house and in his country. This week, we begin a discussion on Solomon, whose name will be synonymous with wisdom literature. Uh, the iconic story, for example, of Solomon's judgment is in 1 Kings 3, where the women are quarreling about the ownership of a baby. That story is so iconic, it expands beyond our own faith tradition in Christianity. Um, the, the man got 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. And not only that, he expands the kingdom. He has some accomplishments and some wisdom. But uh, his kingship does raise questions. The, the the means of expansion is a question. The massive provisions for his massive court is a question, including all kinds of domesticated and wild animals, 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which was explicitly forbidden uh, to the king, according to Deuteronomy. And he builds a really big house slash palace for himself in addition to the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, that takes him 20 years, and he mobilizes a massive workforce for the project, including forced labor imposed on Israelites. Uh, he also has a thousand concubines, which is also uh, explicitly forbidden. And uh, further, it makes further he makes slaves of Canaanites to build storage cities and military bases, all for the purpose of expanding empire, which we have started in our study of the Hebrew Bible with the understanding that this was going to be a problem throughout the text. This was going to be a problem in uh, Israelite, Israelite society. Um, a, a lot of tension was built in, uh, under his reign to the point where after his death, the kingdom starts to break yeah. apart. And then we see the consequences of that as we proceed in the story, uh, eventually leading to uh, the exile. But uh, that'll be a conversation for, for another day. Anyway, these stories in uh, quick succession make me think of the necessity for being able to to hold mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the good and the bad, the inspiring and the questionable in tension with each other. We, we can be inspired uh, by parts of David's story and appalled by others. We can praise and learn from Solomon's wisdom while acknowledging the tension in his disobedience and idolatry brought on Israel. Uh uh, what's the word? Uh, balance isn't really the right word for what I'm looking for, but I'm, I'm trying to acknowledge right. the complexity of people and the complexity of this text. Two things can be true. Multiple things can be true. And consequently, there's not a ton of room for binary thinking in how we assess these individuals and how we uh, read the text and how we practice our faith, how we assess anybody or how we assess our faith. I, I got into it the other day with some folks the other day. Uh, that insisted there's no reason for a black person to be Mormon, that 
that that isn't ignorance or anti-blackness. And while I do understand why people would say that, given our history and so many of our experiences, it's just not a logical conclusion. In our theology, there's yeah. beauty, there's wisdom, there's pro-blackness, among other things. Things are not all bad or all good, and our responsibility is to engage the bad and the good appropriately, which is how you hold things in tension with each other, how you hold multiple truths at the same time. We sustain the brethren and we hold them accountable for bigotry. We believe uh, this is the restored church and we acknowledge the problematic histories and policies. We believe the Bible to be the word of God and we acknowledge the text of terror and that it is a record right. of very human right. fingerprints. All good or all bad would be easier to deal with. Uh, but we see in the text from David and Solomon's stories and several others like Abraham, uh, Moses, Jacob, etc., that it's almost always more complicated than that. And because it is, yeah. we have to exercise more care when reading the text, uh, dealing with our leaders and our doctrine, mm-hmm. and of course, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with each other. Yeah, and I think the the perfect model that I have for this is option three thinking, because option three thinking is all about being able to hold the complexity um trying the tradition and holding fast to what's good and then holding accountable the stuff that's not. And I think option one thinking and option two thinking are really both sides of the same coin. They're the same all or nothing thinking just on different teams of it. And it takes an option three type thinking to say, look, right, um, David and Solomon weren't perfect. And it's not just that they weren't perfect. They'd had major flaws. But how do we... Um, do we cancel them all together or do we worship them all together? And the answer is neither. What we need to do is take what's good from them and invest in that and then significantly hold accountable the stuff that's not good. And those two go hand in hand because if you're holding people accountable to the good that they should be and that they otherwise have in them, that is um, where it is. And so that's... uh, balance like you said isn't the right word because it's not like you're you're averaging them together but it's like you have to be able to um authentically work with the good and the bad uh taking the good and leaving the bad and that's option three thinking i wanted to cover two narratives about solomon one which you've already mentioned uh the the narrative of the asking for wisdom so solomon in first kings 3 asks for wisdom instead of riches and wealth and wisdom i mean riches and wealth and power and all that other stuff and god grants that request and one of the first acts publicly of solomon's wisdom is the dispute over the two sex workers both of whom had a child and one child died and one lived and think about this they were living in the same house they probably didn't have a lot of money they probably did not have husbands, right? Because uh, it, it's clear that there's no other people with them when when the death of one of the infants happens. So it looks like they're in a very vulnerable position in society, and they go before King Solomon, right? They have they are entitled to plead their case before the highest authority in the land here. I think that's amazing that that Solomon was wise enough to say, look, they're sex workers, they're women, they're not powerful, they're on the margins of society, they don't have husbands, they probably don't have a lot of money, um, uh, but I'm going to hear their case, and I'm going to take them seriously, and I'm going to grant them justice. 
that is amazing already. But then the way he grants them justice is to, and people probably know this story, uh, they both claim the live one as their son. Uh, and, uh, and, and Solomon says, okay, well, let's just take a sword and split the live one in half and give one half to each mother. And then the true mother says, no, no, I'd rather have my son alive in this other woman's household than dead. And then the, the false mother says, okay, that's fair. Just kill the kid and give us both half. It was very clear the heart of the mother here, the heart of the compassion that would rather see her kid alive in some, you know, at some distance in someone else's uh, care than dead. And I have made this, I have taught this for years, and I think I'm the first person to teach this in our support of queer children. A lot of people are like, oh no, my queer kid is going to leave the church, or my queer kid is going to leave the family, or my queer kid is going to whatever. But you would rather have your queer kid alive in someone else's household than dead in your household. In um, an era where our culture presents suicide, unfortunately, as a very obvious uh, and ready solution to God having no place for you in this world, is, which is what a lot of people perceive our doctrine to be, uh, we would rather have our kids alive, um, alive to have joy and make mistakes and experience mortality and the ups and downs of life, um, even if it's outside the church. Um, and uh, I guarantee you that that is the wise, the true mother. The true mother would rather have her child alive than dead. Um, so absolutely, unconditionally support your queer kids' lives. Now, I do want to say there's an alternate alternate. Um, parallel narrative to this it's where a couple comes to king solomon and they are disputing over the ownership of a custard and what happens is solomon instead of splitting the custard in half awards the couple shared custardy <laughs> This what we doing now? <laughs> this what we doing now? Shared custardy. <laughs> yeah, I got it the first time. But it's so much fun to say. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so there is that. <laughs> I just had to. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. This is why. This is why. This is why. We can't do this. We can't have good than, things. because We can't do this weekly no more. <laughs> <laughs> can't have nice things that's what it is <laughs> okay and then i wanted to just briefly i'm not going to go into it but the uh temple dedication prayer so solomon uh, builds the temple uh in the place of his father king david um uh, builds the temple and we've got this dedication prayer in first kings chapter eight i think there's a lot of rich theology in there i think it benefits from a, a thorough study but I just wanted to point out a few things. When you read this carefully, the temple is all about holding God accountable, 
right? It's not about, oh, the temple is there to control us, but the temple is there to be a, a crucible a uh, for holding God accountable. Like you can go to the temple, offer your sacrifices, and hold God accountable to God's character and God's promises and God's covenants and say, look, here, we're doing our thing. You got to do your thing. That is what the temple is for. It is not, when you when you read this this entire thing, it's really about God's care for Israel and saying, this is what you've promised us and this is what we're going to do and we're going to fulfill these things. And it's about social justice and it's about taking care of people and it's about um, protecting uh, the children of Israel from from danger and from a famine and all sorts of other stuff. So let's look at 1 Kings 8, verses 23 and 24. It says, <clears throat> and this is uh, Solomon's prayer before the Lord's altar. And he, Solomon, said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above and on the earth below, keeping the covenant and the kindness for your servants who walk before you with all their heart, which you kept for my da- for David my father, what you spoke to him, and you spoke with your own mouth, and with your own hand you fulfilled it as on this day. Uh, it's amazing. So even this beginning prayer is starting out by naming God's identity and holding God accountable to God's promises and naming God as the God who keeps the covenant. I just find that so powerful. Uh, if you look at verse 27, it says, um, verse verse 26, uh, And now, God of Israel, may your words, pray, be shown true that you spoke to David, my father. Again, holding God accountable. But can God really dwell on earth? Look, the heavens and the heavens beyond the heavens cannot contain you. Um, which that says something about our image of God, right? If our image of God is just some straight white dude that's like Utah, uh, a dude that's just exalted, like that, that's not enough of an image to incorporate all of God's children who are created in the image of God. But it, look, the heavens and the heavens above, beyond the heavens cannot continue. How much less this house that I have built? So this house isn't a way of constraining God or constraining us. Like God is not constrained. Like if you look at Karl Rahner, who really saw, thought the entire world was a graced uh, uh, experience by God. All of our sacraments and ordinances are um, sort of just naming what God's already doing in this world. God is doing amazing things for all of God's children, and I don't think we're bound by the temple or bound by these ordinances or, or, or the sacraments. So so there's that to say. Uh, God isn't limited, right? God cannot be uh, limited to the house that Solomon built. In verses 41, um, we talk about um, people being able to bring their their complaints to the Lord, um, to, to pray and, and to ask for forgiveness and that God will, will hear them. And, um, yeah, doing justice in the land. There's just a bunch of great stuff in this, like verses 41 through 43. Look at this. And the foreigner, Solomon says, who is not from your people Israel and has come from a distant land for the sake of your name, if he hearkens to your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, and comes and prays in this house, you will hearken in the heavens, the firm place of your dwelling, 
and do as all that the foreigner will call out to you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as does your people Israel, to know that your name has been called on this house that I have built. So part of missionary work is holding God accountable, right? This is amazing stuff here, that everyone should be able to come to the Lord at this place, and um, no matter what their ethnicity is, and call upon the name of the Lord. And that's how um, everyone will know that the Lord is the Lord. And then just more stuff. Um, it, 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 there's just a so, bun so much good stuff in this thing um, that it would, it would take a, a, you could probably study for two hours on this and, and get it. But anyway, I just wanted to name a few things there that we should incorporate some of this logic when we go to the temple. It's not, oh no, um, God is holding us hostage, and, and if we don't you know, do the hokey pokey, we're never going to see grandma again. That is not what the temple is about. The temple is a concrete place where we can hold God accountable to the grace that God has given to the entire world. And um, I think there's something beautiful in that. The temple has a place of accountability not just to God, but accountability of God. That is definitely mm -hmm. a new idea to me, but it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I appreciate you bringing that in here because uh, I don't think people are out there viewing the temple that way, but it's a very beautiful way to uh, look mm -hmm. at uh, temple worship. And uh, yeah, I like that a lot, Derek. Thank you for thank you for bringing that in here. Yeah. You can depend on me for interesting readings that are well-grounded in the scriptures and awful jokes. <laughs> Two things I can always count on Derek for. Uh, but anyway, uh, I guess that's it for what we can talk about with Solomon in these first, uh, I guess, 11 or 12 chapters in 1 Kings, uh, unless there's uh, anything else. No, we that's not, I don't have I anything else. Okay. And I'm good too. So with that, let's go ahead and transition into these uh, closing exercises. But before we do, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also and on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and by searching for us on Facebook. And we should, in the next few weeks, uh, start reorganizing how we are um, presenting material online. Hopefully, we will have Come Follow Me content in some format available on our social media. Maybe it will be isolated posts maybe we'll have a weekly document ideally for kit for people preparing a lesson they'll be a, they'll want to find it all in one place for the week um and we'll hopefully get a list of suggested resources that um people can go to as they study come follow me as we will be transitioning to this uh different format 
Yeah. And like I said, we're not Definitely going. Me. We're not going away. We're just um, mm-hmm. trying to make it uh, the the best format for this content. And audio doesn't seem for what what we're able to do right now the best way of communicating this content to people every week. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely, I definitely count on the uh, weekly isolated content like we've uh, been doing on like Instagram and Facebook stuff. Uh, you'll probably see more of that, if anything, now that, uh, you know, we're not going to be using the podcast medium ad- as much for Come Follow Me stuff. So definitely count on that. But uh, for those of you who are in our collaborator group, we'll definitely be in conversation with uh, uh, potential ways to release, you know, other mediums to... Uh, uh, release content and hopefully we'll find something that works for everybody and that everybody mm-hmm. likes yeah um, and i want everyone to start getting ready for my new course which is how to do stand-up comedy in a way that hurts nope. your best friend nope <laughs> nope we're not doing that course we are we are not funding this like uh <laughs> nope not happening okay um, well we we but do be lo- on the lookout for a course from derek yeah. derek will be doing a course mm. like believe that well people would pay money to see me uh, crack jokes. <laughs> I'm sure they would. But like, what does it profit if you gain the world and lose my soul? So, <laughs> yeah. No, not at my expense. Well, Shoot. <laughs> Quit jobs for less. Well. Goodness. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, uh, other announcements, other things we got to put people on to. Do you, do you have any engagements in the coming weeks, Derek? No, I just want to wish everyone a happy Juneteenth and a happy Pride Month. Um, and make sure you keep the pride going year round. This isn't like you you put your flags away. Like I can't I can't put my gayness away anywhere, right? There's no closet big enough for that anymore. So mm-hmm. um, don't put away your advocacy and your um, status as an accomplice the rest of the year. Make sure you keep it going all year round and I'm sure we'll have something to do for um for uh, for LGBT history month in October. And also if you're not familiar with this the history of Stonewall, make sure you get to know Stonewall and uh look at the characters involved and and and, and name those those voices and figure out what's going on because that is central to why we even have pride and why we um have uh, some of the social change that we have today in this country and so so yeah keep stonewall in mind and i need to have more of a stonewall spirit as i do my activism in the church and people hopefully have seen my month of activism that i've been posting on my personal facebook page these are public posts oh every day put that url up there every day in uh every day in june and that's at facebook.com slash derek.nox and you can find these public posts yeah, they've been uh, they've been very good. I definitely encourage y'all to uh, check those out. Um, very enjoyable and very thought provoking. Been enjoying. I don't I don't know if "enjoy" is the right word for all of them or a- even any of them, but uh, mm-hmm. they are necessary, and I appreciate them. So thank you for oh, taking yeah, the time and the energy to uh, put those up there for the people. I really got to share some of those on the uh, on the pages because, like, you low key be dropping bars every. Like for the last several days, you've been dropping mm-hmm. bars. I could do like, this every day I don't know of the if year. Sing them. Like, if I had the time, well, uh, I could do this every yeah, day of the year and not run out of 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 stuff to say. That would shake <laughs> people's. Knows, uh, that's true. Shake people's foundations. Indeed. 
anything else uh, we got to put folks onto events or announcements? Anything else? Hmm. Uh, the affirmation conference is going to be. I I should have pulled up the the time and date of it, and I don't even know what it is and and where it is. But uh, keep that in mind. It's in person this year, and um. Uh, it, it looks like we've got some great stuff going on at the Affirmation Conference. So there's there's that. All right. Well, then, if there's nothing else, thank you for joining us. Till we meet again. Till we meet again. And uh, I'm not sure when that will be on this uh, audio format, but it'll be again. So don't go away. Stay subscribed and stay sharing us. <laughs>